evening. We are continuing our series on the book of Revelation. Starting in chapter 7, we had finished chapter 6 last time we were together, and the last chapter ended with the seal judgments. And so at the end of the seal judgments, we find that the, the humanity, the population, is hiding in caves because there's so much chaos. I had said last week, it seems that the earthquakes that are taking place are so severe. We're not just talking an earthquake, two-minute, three-minute, and I've been in earthquakes, and oftentimes they're just you know a few minutes and done, and the chaos caused is significant in that amount of time. It seems to me that if they're hiding, running from their cities and their homes, to hide in the caves and then eventually say I've had enough and to run from the caves outside and say kill me now. These earthquakes are continual earthquakes for, for at least hours if not days. I'm thinking weeks, maybe even months. So can you imagine where the whole world is shaking for hours or even days nonstop? How scary that would be on top of everything else. So the mental health of the average human being at this point is just going crazy and so bad that the desire to, to die, to commit suicide, is now just a common thing. And we are only in chapter 7 now. So let's get to chapter 7, verse 1. And after these things, I. Now remember who's speaking here. This is the Apostle John, one of the 12 apostles, the last remaining apostle. All others have been murdered, uh, mar- murdered and martyred, both, including the Apostle Paul. And so the Apostle on the island of Patmos is having a vision, and he says, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth. Now, do not think that God is trying to, in some way, allude to a flat earth here. Don't, don't ever try to use this verse to claim. Don't let anyone else do that. The four corners of the earth is, is an, a reference to the idea of, you know, different parts of the earth. God is using a metaphor here. He is not trying to claim a flat earth. Uh, in other parts of the Bible, God specifically says the circle of the earth. So God knows the earth's not flat. We know it's not flat. Uh, So the four corners, different parts of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. So I had ended last week by reading this verse and telling you, after all this chaos, after all the earthquakes, what is there? Silence. The weather phenomenons cease. The earthquakes stop. There's no wind. There's no breeze. It's a still day. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither nor the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Remember, the whole seven years is judgment after judgment. Even this brief respite, this brief moment from judgment is not, oh, finally, it's over. No, it's the calm before the next storm. And so this angel is speaking to the others and says, hey, don't start the next judgment until God seals his followers. Now, who are these followers? Well, they can't be us, the church. I've told you my belief, strong belief, is the church is raptured before the tribulation. So there are Christians during the tribulation, but there are people who got saved after the rapture. And so God says, I'm going to put a seal in verse 3. On their foreheads. Now, I don't know if this seal is visible. I could, I could believe easily that it is. We're going to find the Antichrist, after this seal, has his own seal that he places, and it's a visible seal. So it, it's possible, you know, Satan, as he always does, mimics God, right? Satan can't ever do better than God. Satan can only have a fuzzy version of God, which is less and worse, And so it is possible the seal was viewed. I don't know if that's a good thing, by the way, to be a Christian at this time and have a seal saying, I'm a Christian, is basically a a call to kill me. So I could see how God wouldn't do that, because if he did, more would die, but I I don't know. I don't know if it's visible or not. I could see either way. And so these seals are definitely seen by God. Well, you know, what's the purpose of the seal? If it's not visual... And, and if God's the only one that sees it, and God knows who's saved anyways, why bother with the seal? I think that there really is a seal, visual or otherwise, and I think that God is doing it not for his sake. God knows what's going on. God knows the future. God knows who's going to live or die. God's doing it for our sakes. Isn't that great? We have a God who doesn't do everything for his sake. There's a lot of things he does he doesn't need to. He does them for our sakes. And not the least of which, 
is the death on the cross of his son. It wasn't for his sake. It was for our sake. I remember hearing a verse some, one time, a, a, a song one time, that, that the, the singer was basically in applying that Christ died on the cross because he didn't want to be alone for eternity. <laughs> and so he wanted people to join him for eternity, so he saved us so we could have companionship. And I thought, that's, that's not in Scripture. I don't see that. God, for eternity past, didn't have humanity. And for eternity past, was completely fine and holy on his own without us. God didn't die so that he wouldn't be alone for eternity. There's the Trinity. No, he died for us so that we wouldn't be alone in hell for eternity. And there is much that God does. And there is much that God has written in his word for us. It's like a parent who is tired. They've been working all day. They go home and they are completely happy eating a granola bar and going to bed. But they don't, do they? They stay up way past their comfort level to feed their kids that don't even want to eat the food you made them. And that's God. God feeding us things we don't even want to eat. God doing things for us we don't appreciate. And yet a good parent will do the same thing tomorrow and the next day and the next. And God is a good father. God feeds us, God cares for us, God does things for us. And so this sealing is just part of God's character. God's not sealing them so he says, oh, I want to make sure I don't kill you. God knows. He's sealing them to remind them, I haven't forgotten you. Isn't there much that God does for us to remind us that he has not forgotten us? As we worship, we should be worshiping to praise God. But doesn't, isn't God so good? When you come together with God's people and you sing and you pray together, it's for God. But then God just says, you know what? I'm going to turn it back and encourage you. With the very worship you're offering to me, coming back to you. And you'll find yourself exiting the church, the fellowship of God's people. Not just worshiping God, but feeling encouraged because that's the kind of God we serve. God gives it back. And so he puts a seal on the heads, I think, to encourage these believers, to, to let them know, I haven't forgotten you, I know who you are, and although you must suffer because you're living in a horrible time, your suffering will not be a direct result of my punishment on you. That's exactly what's going on here, that the punishment that is about to come cannot directly affect my people. Now, there's a lot of times where we as Christians, we live in a cursed world. Our loved ones die, our loved ones get sick. Our loved ones struggle in finances, struggle in relationships. And if we're not careful, we'll think that God is judging us. That's not the truth. I'm not saying God never judges us. And, and I personally believe if you're a Christian, you'll know when God is judging you. But there's a lot of times we think it. It's not true. We only think it because we live in a chaotic world. And God wants to remind us, no, no, the judgment is not on you. You're just in a world that is cursed. Can you imagine to be alive during this time, how easy it would think God must hate me. What I'm going through, what I have to experience, my God must not love me. And God is just saying, no, of course I love you. It breaks my heart that you're alive during this time. And I, I want to remind you that this tribulation is not because of you. Verse 4. I heard the number of them which were sealed. And 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And we give the different tribes, and each one was 12,000. You can, you can read those, verses 5 on to verse 8. And so we see each tribe, 12,000, 144 in total. And there are some who believe that this sealed group, this 144,000, are Gentile Christians who have done really well in this life, and will be given a, a prominent place in heaven. And they use this text, this ceiling, to say that if you're one of the 144,000, you'll be given a better paradise than other Christians. You'll have a better heaven than others. And that's, that's not what Baptists teach. That's not what evangelicals teach. But there are some religions, some spinoffs of evangelical Christians that would teach if you do really, really well in this life, you're one of the 144. No, you don't want to be one of the 144 because that means you have to be alive during the tribulation. And also, you won't be one if you're not a Jew, because God is very clear here. You have to be a Jew, and they're alive during the seven-year tribulation. So you could not have been one of these 144 if you've been dead for 100 years. So let's not twist Scripture into saying something 
that maybe motivates us to do better using the wrong texts. So there are Jews, 12,000 from each tribe. Verse 9, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, all nations, kindreds, people, tongues, stood before the throne. So he's, he's looking back in heaven again, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. So we go from God informing through the angel, do not do anything else until my faithful are sealed. Now to the throne room. I mean, have you noticed almost every time now we're in the throne room, what's going on? God is receiving praise. Right? We, we saw the angels, the seraphim, they're praising God. We saw the church, they're, they're praising God. We see them again here. Every kindred, every tongue. This is the church. This is not the nation of Israel. This is, this is the New Testament church. And what are they still doing? Still praising God. Worshiping God. They have palms in their hands. They're wearing white robes, crying with a loud voice, salvation to our God. So consider this. In heaven, you will not have a perfect knowledge. You won't know everything, but you'll know things a lot clearer. And when you have the understanding of a glorified being, glorified body, what is it do you think will stand out most to you about God? Well, I can tell you what it is because that's what we're praising. His salvation. His glory. Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Not the first time you read about that. I think that it would do us well here on earth to recognize that if we just keep praising God for his salvation, and if you have on the helmet of salvation, Ephesians chapter 6, that's what it's referring to, and if you keep, keep your focus on who you are in Christ and where you're headed, this life is a whole lot easier to navigate. You want to talk about discouragement? Discouragement is real. Depression is real. I want to tell you this. You are not sinning because you're depressed. You're not sinning because you're discouraged. Sin is not the emotion. Sin is what you do because of the emotion. The, the, the feeling of depression, you're not any more wicked or any, any less righteous than any other Christian. Now, if in depression you mistreat your family, that's a problem. If in depression you mistreat yourself, that's a problem because you're the body. Your body's a temple of the Holy Ghost, and to mistreat this body is a problem. Some people think that the depression and the discouragement, I've already sinned, so what's the point of even trying? I'll just keep doing what I want because I've already made the mistake. No, you haven't. The depression and the discouragement is because you live in a, in a crazy time of life, in a cursed world, and you're a human being. And you want to overcome the discouragement, overcome the depression. There's a lot of things. You know, one, friendships, solid, healthy friendships, that will go a long ways in helping you confront discouragement and depression. Activities, keeping yourself active in things you enjoy doing and that are healthy for you. That has been proven scientifically to help your brain, the chemical balance, the emotions in your body to do better. If you sit at home, do nothing, the discouragement gets worse. Depression gets worse. When you're out with people who you trust, who love you, I'm not going to say it eliminates it, but it helps it. You know what else helps discouragement and depression? And you know how I know this? The Bible, praising God. How do I know that? One of the greatest, in my opinion, lovers of God. I'm not going to say greatest men because we're all wretched sinners. One of the greatest lovers of God in the Bible, in my opinion, David. I'm going to talk about a man who struggled with depression. That guy struggled with depression. You read the book of Psalms, how could you not know that? The book of Psalms are, is basically depression put to music. <laughs> but then at the end of all, the, all of those depressing songs, every time David gives a depressing song of my enemies are out to get me and I'm falling apart, I have nowhere to go, my life's a wreck. I'm paraphrasing, of course, he doesn't use those words. At the end of the Psalms, what does he say? But my God is my buckler, buckler my shield. My God is my rock. My God has not forgotten me. My God is my salvation. David struggled with depression. He's, he's, the, he's the poster child for biblical depression. And yet God said, there's a man after my own heart, a man who struggled with depression. And David loved God deeply and yet still struggled with depression. Do not think that you're less of a Christian. Do not think, well, if I loved God more, I wouldn't be so depressed. Look, some people, that's just the, the cross you have to bear. That's just a burden for some. 
that you'll never be able to set aside. But you can still love God, and God still loves you. And if you don't want depression to control you, if it's part of your burden you have to bear, then at least decide, I'm not going to let it control me. Then do what David did and praise God. Praising God is a great response to our discouragement, to our depression. I don't struggle with that chronically, either one. I've been discouraged. I've had, you might call minor depression, you know, just because of life, not because it's a chronic problem. But I will tell you this, when I have struggled with it, going to God in prayer, praising, singing in my head, you know, just spending time with him, every single time, every single time helped. It didn't fix the problem that I was discouraged about. The problem was still there. I didn't let it wreck my life. Uh, The person who was mad at me was still mad at me after I was done praying, but I was able to sleep that night, right? We often think that if I praise God, my problems go away. No, they don't. (laughs) Not always. In fact, most of the times, very rarely. But what happens is when you praise God, the problems don't control your life. They don't seem so overwhelming you have nowhere else to go. Be like David. Depression, that's just some of our calling. But you can overcome it. You don't have to let it control you. Let's remember to praise God. And when we praise him, let's remember one of the greatest things to praise him for is our salvation, what he's done for us, and where we're headed. And that allows us to see the world in its true light, a temporary home we're just passing through. And so verse 12, let's move on. These, the same church, they're falling on their faces in verse, excuse me, falling on their faces in verse 11, worshiping God, verse 12, saying, amen, blessing and glory, wisdom and thanksgiving, honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. I love this. Okay, so let, let's, we're still talking about worship here. You want to you know a godly way to worship? Look at, look at the Psalms. Great, great truths about how to worship God. It is okay when you worship God to talk about your problems. It's okay. God's not offended when you bring your problems to him. He wants you to. Don't feel bad about that. It's okay as a church when you worship God. Tears because just life is so heavy. You're not a horrible person for crying at worship service, not because it's so beautiful, because the pain is so much. You're not a horrible person for that. That's fine. But let's look at what worship looks like in heaven, and let's say, should we not pattern our worship based off of what we know is perfect worship? And here is perfect worship right here. And look what they're saying. Look how they're worshiping. How are they worshiping? On their face. In a perfect state, eternal, with glorified bodies. They're as good as they're going to get. And in the presence of God, they're on their face. And to our shame, in our hearts, in our heads, in our bodies, as we worship God, there's no humility. I think sometimes false humility can be a big danger. And to walk into some churches, and if you, everyone, everyone's on their face, if, it would, if I felt it was truly sincere, it would be a beautiful thing. I think it would be hard to probably find a body of believers with true, sincere worship where everyone's on their face. Our pride just gets in the way of our worship. Our pride of, well, I could sing better than, than them up on the stage. Oh, you know, I, that song's not the song I like. Or, oh, man, you know, that prayer sure was long or it was too short or, you know, whatever, right? Our pride is evaluating and judging the worship service rather than just on our face, whether metaphorically or physically, knees on our face before God. We are not in a perfect state. We're as bad as it's going to get, and we think that we're good enough to stand up to God. We will realize how wrong that is when our knowledge is opened up and we can see clearly who we really are, even in a perfect state compared to a perfect God. It's great truth, great reminder, beautiful picture. Verse 13, one of the elders, remember I told you the elders represented the priest, king, of the church. It's not necessarily there will be, you know, so many special Christians giving the seat. They're, they're an illustration of the church as a whole. One of the elders answered unto me, what are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I said unto him, sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, these are they which came out of great tribulation, and washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. We're going to find that there will be another reference to wiping away tears. This is not the only time that this is referred to in the book of Revelation. And so I don't know. There's two ways to view this passage. Either it's referring to the fact that all believers have gone through some form of tribulation in this life, which I think is a real, pretty realistic thing to say. If you've lived at any given time in the world, in the history of the world, you've been through some tribulation. And so it's either referring to the fact that all Christians came through the fire of the curse of the world to be with God, and therefore it's referring to all Christians, or it's referring to a specific group only. And so where are the rest of the Christians? If this is only referring to those who've been martyred, killed for the cause of Christ, then where are the rest? I don't know. Look, whether, whatever way you view it doesn't change theology. There's no theology that's affected by your view. So you are welcome to believe whatever you want. The Bible doesn't clarify. It seems to me it's probably referring to the church that has been persecuted, killed. Doesn't necessarily mean it has to be during the tribulation period because there are many Christians who are persecuted and killed today. So I, if I had to choose one, I'd say this particular group of worshipers consists of the church, but only those in the church who paid the ultimate price and died serving God, being martyred. And they are given a special worship service, a special position in the throne room of God that God basically says, hey, because of what you did, here's your seat right here. Right? You know, not necessarily the right, because that's Jesus Christ, right hand of God, right? But, you know, here's your seat. See, right there. The ones who paid the ultimate sacrifice, I got a special place up front for you. That, that's one way to view this text, probably the way I would choose. You don't have to. You could say, well, I just think it's all Christians because we all went through tribulation. That's fine, too. Either way, these Christians who had a difficult life, you notice what they're not doing? They're not complaining to God about it, are they? Now, there is a text earlier that says, God, when will you avenge us? Even then, that's not a complaint. They're just saying, God, where's the justice? You know, we're here. We died. Others are dying. When is the justice? That's a question that a lot of Christians have asked and will continue to ask, God, when is your justice? And God's answer has always been, I'm patient. It is coming, but I'm patient and want to give the world a little longer. But they're not complaining. They're not complaining that they died. Earlier, they still don't complain. They're just asking, when will the world pay? That's chapter 7. Let's go to chapter 8, and we begin the trumpets. Now, there's a, little, there's a trumpet, and there's a little bit of brief uh, scenario going on, and then the trumpets again. So let's, let's look at verse 1, chapter 8. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of an hour. Now, remember I told you there's three sets of judgments? And at the end of every judgment, it opens up to the next kind of set, the next thing that's going on. So the first set was the seal judgments. The second set is the trumpet judgments. The third set is the vial, or, or you could say bowl judgments. It's basically a container pouring out uh, um, something, you know, judgment on the earth. And so the first set is ended. We kind of ended it already in chapter 6. And then we had this view of heaven in chapter 7. And now chapter 8, we're reminded again of the judgments but the seventh one isn't a judgment. It's the opening up of new judgments, which are going to be the trumpet judgments. But there's silence in heaven, which means there's no worshiping. I remember <laughs> riding in the car. This was last year to basketball practice. We only go to the YMCA for practice. It's all of like five-minute drive. And I'll, I would drive kids in the shuttle bus, or if, if someone else is driving the shuttle bus, I'll drive my, my van or my car. It will be full of, of teenagers, middle schoolers. And uh, one time I was driving a bunch of middle school girls in the car. There's about four of them, and they're laughing and giggling, going crazy. And then you know how it goes with middle school girls, right? One of them will say something really loud or laugh really loud, and no one knows how to respond, and they're all just silent. And that's what happened. So they were goofing around, having fun, and then something was said, which no one knew how to respond to, and there was this silence. And then one of the girls said, well, this is awkward. <laughs> and then, you know, that caused them to laugh, and then they started talking again. You know... I think that the value of silence is lost on children. Why is that? Because they're immature. So what does that say about us as adults when we also forget the value of silence? 
that like children, sometimes we're just too immature to recognize. Silence isn't always bad. Be still and know that I am God. And yet too many Christians are constantly looking for the next noise. God, where are you? Where's the noise? God, where are you? I can't find you. Marco, Marco, where's the polo, God? Come on, your turn. Looking for the loudest music, the loudest church, the loudest experience. They're looking for God to yell in their ear, for God to flash lightning in the sky. And they are missing on so much. Because God says to Elijah, I wasn't in the fire. I wasn't in the wind. I wasn't in the earthquake. I'm the still, small voice. And while the Christian is yelling out for God, God, where are you? God, where are you? God, where are you? God says, I'm over here. But they can't hear because they're yelling. Children like loudness. Children don't understand how to behave themselves when they're silenced. Some children will actually misbehave when they're silenced just to stop the silence. Don't be a child. Don't break the silence when God is speaking to you. Be still. Even in heaven, perfection, silence is still used by God. If you find that your spiritual condition is weakening, you find in your life that you're not as close to God as you were a year ago. Let me ask you a question. Do you listen to God in silence as much as you did a year ago? Verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 2. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God and to them were given seven trumpets. These trumpets represent Old Testament Jewish ceremonial trumpets. And if you read the Old Testament, if you recognize that different trumpets were used, different sounds of trumpets, different, uh, uh, different volumes or, or music was blown out of the trumpets to inform the congregation of the upcoming sacrifice or ceremony, or banquet. But if you read the Old Testament, you also find there are trumpet blows to specifically warn the Jews of impending battle. When to gather together for arms. You see, trumpet calls weren't always for, let's get together and eat. They weren't always for, hit the ground and worship God. We're about to, we're about to sing. They weren't always for, the ceremony's done, go home. It was sometimes, the enemies are coming. Prepare yourself. But this is an unusual trumpet because you don't have trumpet sounds in the Old Testament given to the Jews for, blow this trumpet, God's judgment is coming. That's not mandated in Old Testament law. But this is new for the Jews to read this. They would be very familiar with trumpets and trumpet sounds and the significance of it, but they would not have any experience with this. These trumpet sounds are the call of God's judgment being thrown to earth. And each time a trumpet is blown, a new judgment descends to the earth. And so in a sense, this is a ceremonial illustration. It's a ceremony of the judge in his robes saying, guilty as charged, and here is the sentence. It's a formal scenario. Verse 3, and another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. I've said before, as we saw the throne room, there was an altar, and the incense, we're told, was the prayers of the saints. And so this angel is, is coming into the throne room, and he has incense, and he offers it along with the prayers that are already there. Well, if the incense of the altar is prayers, and he's bringing incense, what do you think he's bringing? I think he's bringing more prayers. That's how I'm viewing this verse. And so God is giving a picture how the prayers of the saints are brought to the throne room of God by the angels. 
How cool is that? You ever wonder, what is the job of the angels? You know, God doesn't give us a whole lot. In the Old Testament, we saw some of it had to deal with, you know, telling Joshua, march around the city, and, 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 and dealing with, with other uh, Old Testament patriarchs and saints. Not a whole lot of that going on in the New Testament. We do read that there are angels amongst us, and we do not know, unawares. But what do they do? What's their job? Well, we're told that they are ministering beings. In what way do they minister to us? I don't know. I know the Holy Spirit's the great comforter. Doesn't mean he's the only comforter. Right? Is it possible to have more than one? I think it is. I think that if the, if the angels are ministering to us, it could be they are comforting us. We're told that they're protectors, specifically of children. God doesn't clarify if the angels protect humans. He does talk about not uh, harming a child or their angel will bring your sin to my presence. And he says, you don't want to be one of those guys who the angel brings to my attention what you're doing. I mean, obviously, God sees everything. Again, it's metaphorical, right? So do the angels take our prayers and bring them to God. Well, God hears everything. God knows everything. You know how I picture it? There are a lot of chores at my house that my wife and I can do, significantly better than our children. But I have our children do chores. Why? I want my children to be part of our family. I don't need them to do anything. I need them to know they don't get a free ride. I need them to know what it's like to work. I have my reasons. God doesn't need these angels to do anything. He was completely fine. The Trinity was completely fine for eternity past before angels were created. But God allows the angels to do things. To bring prayers to the throne room of God doesn't make sense to us because God hears our prayers long before the angels would bring it to him. But that's just the point. It's a beautiful picture of God's love and compassion for his servants. I don't need you to, but I want you to want to. God doesn't need us to do anything. He wants us to want to. And I do believe, according to this text, one of the jobs of the angels as we pray, it's not just the Holy Spirit that hears. It's not just God the Father, God the Son, God the Son, an advocate to God the Father. The angels are also taking the prayers and refilling the incense with the praise and the prayers of God's people. That's one of their jobs. And we see that here. Verse 4, the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God. Verse 5, out of the angel's hand, which again implies the angel brought prayers. It wasn't just prayers were already there. He's bringing more. Verse 5, and the angel took the censer, filled it with the fire of the altar, cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. All right, this is a very odd picture. So the prayers up to this point are used to illustrate a sweet smell incense in the throne room of God that is pleasant to the worshipers. But now the angel is taking that pleasant altar smell and throwing it to the earth. What's, what's that supposed to picture? That... The prayers of the saints aren't all praise, are they? Sometimes the prayers of the saints are, God, where's your justice? When will you arrive? And this angel is basically taking the prayers and saying, I'm going to take them and cast them back to the earth where they came from. God's coming. God's on his way. Verse 6. The seven angels, which had the seven trumpets, prepared themselves to sound. Do your best to picture this. You're in heaven, loud music, loud worship, some of the sweetest worship you ever heard. Everything stops for an hour. The Apostle John was not going to be the one to break that silence. He watches intently. After an hour, he's, just, he's a sil- silently, still no talking. The angel walking in. John knew it was prayers. In his, in his vision, he understood. He writes about it. And this angel brings prayers. And in the silence, He takes them and casts them to the earth. Heaven, heaven doesn't have volume. There's no noise in heaven, but he looks to earth from his viewpoint, and he sees lightnings and thunderings on earth. Lots of noise down there. Heaven's still silent. And then seven angels in a row stand up and hold their trumpets. Can you imagine the anticipation of the Apostle John? After an hour of silence, the next sound will be these trumpets, and they'll be trumpet calls of God's judgment. 
And so we find the first sound, verse 7. The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood. And they were cast upon the earth. And the third part of the trees were burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. Where are we in the tribulation period at this point? Are we at the beginning? Are we in the middle? Are we at the end? I cannot say dogmatically that I know where we're at. I can tell you this. Contextually, if you look at chapter 11, we find the two witnesses in chapter 11 are about to be killed. We're going to find it's around that time, the abomination of desolation. We also know from other texts that it is during the abomination of desolation that the Antichrist turns back on his peace treaty, which we know from other texts is halfway point, three and a half years. So if we are given this vision in the order that it happens, then we are not even three and a half years yet into the tribulation. We are somewhere maybe two years, maybe the first part of the third year. I don't know. I, would, I, I think I have a strong assumption, again, not dogmatic, I have a strong assumption that this is given in the order just because it makes sense everything else seems to be given in order. So it makes sense to me we are yet three and a half years in. And so when these judgments takes place, we're probably only two, maybe barely three years into the tribulation. What does that mean? It's significant, and I'll tell you why. When the first trumpet sounds... What happens? A third of the trees and grass burned. third of the trees. Look at verse 7 again. They were cast upon the earth. The third part of the trees are burned up. All, I'm sorry, all green grass, not a third of the grass, a third of the trees, all green grass was burnt up. Now consider this. If you look at California and you look at forest fires and how fires work, what would happen... If there was a third of the world was on fire, well, smoke for one, but fire doesn't just stay there. If the fire was spread out across the world, it would, I'm not saying God couldn't supernaturally contain the fire. Obviously, he could. I think, though, it's more likely that it is not a third of the world throughout the earth. I think there is a third of the world that is on fire. Well, what part of the earth is a third of the world that, if it was on fire, wouldn't affect everything else that goes on in the Middle East, the rest of the book? It's the Americas. Now, that may not be something you want to hear, and I will clarify, it is an assumption of mine. I cannot tell you from Scripture that I am accurate in this assumption. It seems logical to me, it seems very likely to me, that this is when... North and South America are wiped off the map. We do not see North and South America at the Battle of Armageddon. You don't see the West. The Bible does not tell us about large nations coming from our direction overseas. Also, think about this. We're going to find out later towards the end of Revelation, all the ocean becomes blood and all the ships are burnt. So if you can't travel across the ocean... Even if America was alive, they couldn't get to the end battle. So there's no need for them. They don't have a part to play at the end of Revelation. They'd just be sitting around doing nothing. I don't see that happening. There have been those that say, well, you know, if the Bible is really true and the rapture takes place, then I'll get saved during the tribulation. Well, you may or may not. You don't want to be alive during the tribulation. And if you live in the Western Hemisphere, you won't be alive for very long. I firmly believe within a couple, no longer than three years, I'm a strong believer that North and South America is gone completely. It is not pockets of fire throughout a third of the world. I think it is a third of the world gone, burnt up. And all the inhabitants, of course, you're not surviving that. You're dead. That's a pretty severe judgment. And we're only the first judgment of the second set. It just gets worse and worse. If you're feeling bothered by how severe this judgment is, can you understand now the heart of God when he says, don't pray for my return? 
Because when I return this, what I'm bringing, be patient. I'm patient. Give the world longer. I am. Because when you pray for God's return, this is what you're praying for, the tribulation. Do you really hate the world so much that you're praying for this? You say, Pastor Russ, I'm just done. I'm done with the earth. I'm ready to go home. I get it. But don't be so selfish. You're willing to give up the whole world so you can go home? Well, I'd rather be raptured than die. So would I. But not for this. This is going to happen. You can't stop it. I can't stop it. It's not going to be stopped. But I'm not going to pray for this. If that means that I die before being raptured, then I will gladly accept that so that the world has longer. Now, I don't believe that I'll die a natural death. I've said before, I'll say it again, I do believe the rapture will be in my lifetime if I live that long. I just don't see this world going much longer. And I see everything that's happening politically, scientifically, morally, it's just setting us up like never before in history for this. And the, th- the, the, the things going on, the way the world behaves, the mandates that are going on in tribulation, everything, it's like, it's, it's, it, if you could step outside, it'd be like watching a movie and just saying, yep, I already know the end of this story. It's so obvious to me. Right? You ever seen those movies? Like you're bored out of your mind in five minutes because you already know what's going to happen at the end. That's how I feel right now about the world. Like I know what's going to happen. And I feel like this movie is not going to be a three-hour long movie. This is one of those shorter movies. I could be wrong. Many other great men and women before me have been wrong, thought the same thing. Let's move on to the second trumpet. Verse 8. And the second angel sounded, and as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea. I believe this is a meteor. This is not a mountain that crumbles. It's a, it's a heavenly, supernatural event. <laughs> and so this meteor is thrown into the ocean. And a third of the ocean, the sea, becomes blood. Now, I'm no sailor. I don't imagine that it would be very possible to sail, sail in blood. Um, you have an engine. It's going to be gummed up with blood. It's not going to work. You do sail, you know, use sails, the wind, pushing against the, the thickness of the blood. I don't think you're going very far. And so there's a third part of the ocean that will no longer be navi- navigatable, whatever, whatever you Someone help me out there? Navigable? No T? Okay. Navigable. And so, again, it makes sense to me that it's not pockets of the ocean that are blood. There is a large part. And I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm thinking, again, we're talking the ocean surrounding the Americas. That is just wiped off. That's my thoughts. And so a third of the ocean turned to blood. And, of course, all the living creatures in that third, gone. And all the ships who are in that third, gone. That's a lot of death. Is the blood because of the death? No, I believe the blood is what causes the death, and now you're just adding blood to blood. This meteor, is it full of blood? No, this is a supernatural event. All of the tribulations, supernatural. Don't try to explain everything scientifically. All right, You're going to drive yourself crazy. This is a, a very unique period of history where God is supernaturally judging the earth, such as the, the flood. That was a supernatural event where the whole earth is covered in water. This is much worse. That is the second trumpet. Let's get to the third trumpet. Revelation chapter 8, looking at verse 10. And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning, as it were, a lamp. So this star, a second meteor, the first one, fell from heaven, and uh, hail, fire, mingled with blood, cast upon the earth. I'm sorry, no, verse 8, excuse me. A great mountain burning with fire. Now here's another one burning with fire as well. As it were a lamp, it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood. Third part of the waters became Wormwood. Many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. So now the fresh water, a third of it's gone. Okay, so all three of these either have to be, there is pockets of fresh water, pockets of ocean, pockets of land, a third of which in total is destroyed. Or, my opinion, it's a third of the world. There is no fresh water. You can't navigate the ocean, and the land's gone. So you have to decide which one it is for you. 
again, it doesn't change theology. It doesn't change anything about salvation. You won't be here, so it's only a guess. But it makes sense to me theologically when I look at the end of Revelation that it is referring to the Western Hemisphere. That if you were to survive the fire and you weren't in the ocean at that time, you'll die of thirst anyways. There's no food. All the grass, all the shrubbery, burnt. It's a wasteland. But you won't die of starvation. Don't worry about that. You'll die of thirst first because there will be no fresh water to drink from. Wormwood, bitter. I get the implication it doesn't just taste bad. It will make you sick and kill you. If you are so thirsty that you drink it, it probably will be a horrible way to go. And then finally, for tonight, let's look at verse 12. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars, so as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, 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 to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpets of the three angels, which are yet to sound. Okay. You just saw all this happening. And then an angel literally flies around the earth and says, guys, I feel sorry for you. Not because of what did happen, but because of what's coming next. That's not what you want to hear. After going through this and the angel from heaven saying, I pity you because of what's coming. And you're thinking it's worse than this. During 2020, did you get that sinking feeling every time we had a politician stand up? We said, seriously, it's worse. Two weeks later, are you serious? It's worse. Two months later, surely, oh, no, it's worse. Right? It's a small taste of what the world's going to feel in mass. Regularly, especially when this angel's the one giving the announcement. Let's talk about the sun and the moon darkening. It seems to me this is for the rest of the tribulation period. The days actually shrink. There's less light in the day and less night, less darkness by a third. And so God, I, I don't know, I, I guess when you, it's, it's like a, a, an eclipse like you see with this moon. It doesn't ever go to a full moon again. Why? Because the sun doesn't have a full sphere. So... In my vision, you look up at the sun, and like the moon on, on a you know, crescent where part of it's gone, the sun will be like that. Part of it burnt out, and it shortens the day. What's the, what's the damage there? Well, I don't know what that will be doing to the weather patterns. I don't know how that will affect the heat and the cold of the extreme poles and in between. I don't know... Uh, what that will do for, for other things like the ocean and the waves, if nothing else, it's going to be pretty scary. That's after all the other stuff that actually caused death. Third of the ocean gone, third of the land gone, third of the freshwater gone. Now our day is shortening, seriously. And I think it's very likely. I mean, I would imagine this, the weather pattern is going to be affected. That's what I would think. Does this give you any better perspective on the priorities of this next week for you. You know, God doesn't give us revelation to scare us. God gives us revelation to realign us, to refocus us. No good Christian should want revelation to happen now to our loved ones. There is a way out of the tribulation period. His name is Christ. And what are you doing with your life to pass that name on to someone else? Through the way you live, through the way you pray, through the way you talk, through the way you worship. Can it be said that eyes were turned to God because of you, even one? Can it be said that hearts reconsidered because of you, even one? Revelation, you won't be here. Let's do our best to keep others from being here as well. It's not a choice you can make for anyone. But what you can do is stand on truth and say, I've got the answer. 
His name is Christ. Don't make this life about your pleasures. Don't make this life about your peace, your happiness. Can't think of too many prayers worse than this. God, I just want to be happy. Really? Really, that's why I created you, to make you happy. That's your lot in life, to be happy. Nothing else matters. Your happiness trumps all. Those that I love, I want to be happy. I'm sad when those I love are sad. But you know what? As a good father, if my daughter's sadness is better for her than happiness, I will let her be sad. You say, Pastor Russ, how could someone's sadness ever be better for them than happiness? You ever read the book of Ecclesiastes? That wise man Solomon, at the end of his life, after seeing all the mistakes he made, he says it's better to go in the house of mourning than celebration and, and parties. Why? Because when you go in the house of mourning, you recognize many things, one of which everyone dies. What am I doing with mine? Parties is the ignoring of the problems of life. Funerals is a reminder life is temporary. Which one will do better for you? Sure, parties aren't bad. You can enjoy parties and fellowship, but if that's all you do, you probably won't live a great life. To be reminded constantly, life is short. Do something with it. You probably do better in life. That's what Solomon said, paraphrasing. And so, there are times when sadness is exactly what we need. To be reminded, life is not about our happiness. It's about our spiritual health and those we love. Thank you for joining us tonight. I will not be here next Wednesday. In fact, we will not have Bible study next Wednesday. All of the pastoral staff will be uh, out of town. Pastor Jordan, myself, uh, Pastor Ethan, if he's here, will be with the teens upstairs. He will not be here. So there is no Bible study for the adults. I'll be taking some teens and our school to a retreat. And so uh, please don't show up. The doors will not be open to you, <laughs> as far as the adults are concerned, at least. And I'll see you guys in a couple of weeks. We'll continue our series in Revelation in two weeks. Thank you, and have a good night.